Today's scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 3, verses from 14 to 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the word of God. Hey, good afternoon, everyone. It's great to see you all. It's great to be in the midst of this Advent season with you all. As many of you know, and as it's already been mentioned uh, today a couple of times, we are in the middle of Advent season, and Advent simply means, it's a word that means uh, arrival, or it means coming, and what we do during Advent season as a church is we get to look back to the first coming of Jesus Christ, and we also get to look ahead to his second arrival, his second coming, which we await with great anticipation. Um, As a church, really, we try to make everything that we do all year round about Jesus. We want the songs that we sing and the things that we talk about and the way that we worship, we want it all to be about Jesus. We want to teach our kids about Jesus. We want to talk to each other about Jesus. But the fact is that when this time of year comes around, it, it's likely that you're hearing more songs about Jesus or, or more songs about uh, uh, the coming of God in the form of man. Maybe as you drive around or as you, uh, you know, shop in the mall, maybe you hear songs. Or does it, do people even go to the mall anymore? I don't even know. I'm, maybe you just shop online. I'm, I'm from New Jersey. We, we go to the mall in Jersey. We, we like going to the mall. In any case, you're out shopping, you're driving along, or you're in the office, and you're hearing music about the incarnation. And the incarnation simply means this. It means the truth that God, the creator of heaven and earth, took on flesh and bones. God became, took on the form of a man, Philippians tells us. He was born in the likeness of men. And so maybe you're hearing more about that these days. You hear songs on the radio like Away in the Manger or Silent Night. These heartwarming songs that talk about the fact that God took the form of man, in fact, took the form of a baby and was born in a manger. Here's a question for you, okay? Where does the story of Advent begin? Or where does Christmas begin? Does it begin in a a manger? The baby? Is that where it starts? Or, Or does it begin a little earlier than that? Does it begin with an angel announcing to a teenage virgin girl that she would soon give birth to a child? And his name would be Jesus. Is that where it starts? Fact is, that those are not, those are important points in the Christmas story. But neither one of those is really where the Christmas story begins. Christmas begins not in the manger, but in a garden. That's where Advent has its starting point. You see, in, if we go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, we find out that God created the world and everything in it. And he calls it good. He says everything in it was good. And and in that perfect world, he puts a perfect garden. And that garden was good too. And then in that perfect garden, he puts people. 
He puts Adam, and soon after that, Eve. And they both live in that perfect garden, in perfect relationship with each other, and in perfect relationship with God, according to his perfect design. You see, everything was functioning just as God had designed it to. But it didn't last long. Because eventually, Adam and Eve, these these, these people, rejected God's perfect design. They, They wanted, in fact, the one thing that God had withheld from them. He told them that it would destroy them to disobey him. But they didn't believe him. Instead, they believed an enemy. An enemy that wanted them destroyed. Satan himself, Genesis tells us, disguised as a serpent. And as a result of that disobedience, as a result of rejecting God's perfect design, everything was ruined. Everything was broken. Peace that existed in that perfect garden was shattered. Life itself was broken. Nature was thrown into chaos. And and so in the midst of all that chaos, that's where the story of the incarnation begins. That's where the story of Christmas starts. Look look at the verses that Ishii just read to us. They don't sound like heartwarming Christmas themes, do they? Maybe you thought she, she read the wrong verse or something. Because we read there in Genesis 3, 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, curse are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. You see, this is what happens after sin enters the garden, after sin enters the world. These are words of judgment. They're, they're, they're a curse. And, and the fact is that very soon, if we keep reading down in Genesis 3, we'll find that God had words of judgment For Adam and Eve, too. In fact, those two would be thrown out of the garden, evicted. But first, before any of that happens, we have what we have here in verse 15. I want to invite you to read verse 15, because I want you to see that what's in verse 15 is actually a beautiful promise and has everything to do with what we're celebrating in the Advent season. Because verse 15, God comes to this serpent, and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, the offspring that is, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Do, do you see the promise in there? It, it's hidden, and it, it's hard to see. And, and I think it points us to the fact that God, who has written the script, the Bible is written by many different authors, a series of different authors, but what, what it tells us is that behind all of those authors, there was one singular author who inspired all of them. God himself, by his Holy Spirit, inspired those men who wrote. Those people who wrote these words. And God, we find, is a, is a masterful storyteller. He, he gives us this, these strange words here, but they foreshadow something that will happen millennia later. What God is telling the serpent, and really he's telling Adam and Eve, and really he's telling us with these words, is that evil will not have the final say. The creator God comes and he promises that one day there's going to be a son, there's going to be an offspring from this woman who's going to make all things right again. Who's going to reestablish God's perfect design and all that comes with it, all the flourishing and all the blessing that comes with that. The offspring of this woman, he says to the serpent, you will bruise his heel 
You're going to harm him. He's going to be hurt by evil. But this offspring, this future son, he will crush the head of the serpent. That's how one older, some older translations put it. He's going to bruise, he's going to crush the head of the evil one. You know, since the earliest days of the church, the church has acknowledged that this is the, 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 the first place that we see the gospel proclaimed in the Bible. The first place that we hear this promise that there's going to be a son who's going to come and he's going to rescue the world from sin and from death, from evil. This is our story. It's not just the Christmas story. And, and all that happens here in Genesis 3, what it's done, I believe, in us is that it's created, whether we realize it or not, this deep-seated longing, this ardent desire in the human soul to see that promise fulfilled. Because the fact is that we live in a broken world, and I think we all know that, don't we? We live in a world that's not the way it should be. And, and I think we know that. And we live daily with the weight of that. We might disagree on like what's wrong with the world exactly. We might disagree with each other on, on what needs to be done to fix the world, or whether it can be fixed. But we all want this world to be different, don't we? We long for things to be better. We long for things to be different. What do we long for exactly? What are we longing for? I want, to, I want us to see in, this, in, the, in these verses, Genesis 3, 14 and 50, th- 15, three things that I believe we all long for. We long for a perfect place. We long for protection and pardon, and we long for a person. Not so coincidentally, they all start with P's. But we long for a perfect place, we long for pardon and protection, and we all long, ultimately, whether we know it or not, for a person. For a person. Let, let's, let's look at this longing that we have for a place that is perfect, a place that we have lost. Genesis 3 23 and 24, down, down a little bit, a few verses down from, from where we've read, tells us that after God um, comes to Adam and Eve, and after they have sinned, he says to them, he does this, he says, therefore the Lord God sent him, that is Adam, out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Look at verse 24, it says, he drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. What we have here is is people being exiled from the garden and away from the tree of life. And and guards being placed. I can't even picture this in my mind. I don't know what it looks like, but there's guards placed at the entrance to keep them out. And what they're going to find out, and what we find as we read through the rest of Genesis, is that life outside the garden was very different from life inside the garden. Inside, there was perfect, open relationship between people and between people and God. There was transparency. There was acceptance. There was, there was, there was what the, the Bible calls shalom. But it's not like that outside the garden. Think about it. Is that what your relationships look like? Transparency, acceptance, 
perfect openness and peace? Is that what your relationships look like, all of them? Is that what your friendships look like? Is that what your marriage looks like? But don't we long for that to be the reality in our marriages, if you're married, or in your friendships and relationships? Don't you long for the openness and the transparency and the full acceptance and perfect shalom? We all want it. Inside the garden, there was justice and there was equity. Is, is that the world that we live in? How about your workplace? Is, is your workplace, if you're in school, whatever grade you're in, as you look around at your classmates and you look around at the place that you're in school, do you feel like, hmm, things here are always fair, always just. Everyone treats each other like an equal with respect. Is that what you see? Peace and every need met. That's life inside the garden. Is that what our country looks like right now? Is that what the world looks like? I think we'd all admit that it's not what our country looks like. And, and really, it's not even what the whole, what anywhere in the world looks like. I know sometimes the, the, the grass often looks greener um, across the street, you know. I know that during, during the election, many people said that, you know, if, 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 uh, if Donald Trump wins the election, I'm, I'm moving to Canada. I heard many people say that. And no offense to Canada. No, no offense, Tom, but, um, and, and, and Tim, but, but, um, Canada's got its own problems, right? Canada's not the Garden of Eden. Canada is not some kind of utopia. The weather alone, I think, disqualifies it from that. But even beyond that, they have their own societal problems, I'm sure. And I think if we look throughout the globe, that's all we're going to see. We're going to see that it's always life outside the garden. And it's not what we long for. It's not what we long for. Listen to what, I love the way C.S. Lewis put this. He's a, he's a philosopher, author, the, the, the guy who wrote the, Chronicles of Narnia series. He says this. He says, Our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we feel cut off, this desire to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside, he says, is no mere neurotic fantasy, but it's the truest index of our real situation. You know what he's saying there? He's saying, look, you and I long for a perfect place because we were made to dwell with God in a place that's unstained and unbroken by sin. It's what we were made for. So the longing in our hearts is not some kind of naive idealism that you need to outgrow and get over and become realistic about. No, that longing deep in your heart is the echo of the fact that you were made for that. Your desire for things to be different is not just a childish fantasy. It's not something to grow up out of and give up. The result, they're the result of being made for something, made for something that we have lost because of sin. We all long for a perfect place. And, and, and then secondly, we long for something else. We, we long for protection and pardon. And I think we see that in these verses too. We're not going to take the time to read it, but if you read from verse 7 around to about 13 or so, what you're going to see is that after Adam and Eve sinned, what happened is they hid themselves from God. The, the scene is tragic, and if it weren't so tragic, it would almost be comical because they, they hide behind bushes and they sew together fig leaves 
to cover themselves up. This is what sin does to them. It makes them hide from the God that only moments earlier before they fell into sin, they had open relationship with, open communication with. Now they were hiding because they wanted to be sheltered from his anger. They feared his judgment. And then when God comes and speaks to them about what they've done, and they, 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 he starts asking questions, not because he wants to know what happened. He already knows what's happened, but he's asking them so that their hearts will be opened up and they'll start to admit what they've done. What do they do? They start throwing each other under the bus. When he says, when he says Adam, what have you done? Adam's response is, well, you gave me this wife, you see, and, and this wife has not done right by me. She tricked me. She's, she, she pressured me. They throw each other under the bus. And, and verse 7, it says, like I said before, that they sowed fig leaves to, to cover themselves up. So not only are they blame-shifting, but they're also now ashamed. And shamed not only in God's presence, but ashamed in each other's presence. You see how sin came and it fractured relationship with God and with one another, too. This little perfect society crumbled. And I think, I hope, that we're aware enough of ourselves and of our condition that we can relate to this. That we could say, that we would say with Adam and Eve, something is wrong with me. I failed. I'm not good. At least I'm not as good as I would like to be or as good as I should be. I haven't constantly lived up to my own standards, let alone God's standards. And because we feel that way, don't we want to be forgiven? Don't you want pardon? Think about it this way. Would you like, do you want the evils that you've done to be remembered and held against you? I don't think any one of us does. We'd like to be forgiven of those evils. We'd like them to be overlooked and forgotten. Don't we want protection as well? Do you want others to shame you or to harm you because of who you are or because of what you've done? No, you want protection. And so how do we, how do we try to get that protection? I think sometimes we try to get that protection by keeping people at an arm's distance or by doing what Adam and Eve did, by justifying ourselves, by blame shifting. Or maybe you just use cynicism and anger to protect yourself. Or maybe you just try, you hide your true self. Don't let it out for fear that you might be hurt. For fear that you might be violated. Or maybe you justify yourself and criticize others and shame others as a way to protect yourself. Do you do any of those things? And, and if we do, I think we have to admit that those are all just fig leaves and they're hiding behind bushes, just like Adam and Eve did. But here's where Genesis 3 leads us. Here's where Genesis 3 leads us. It, it leads us back to where we started today. Because it shows us that the only way that we can get what we really long for is through this hero, through this offspring, this son who's promised in verse 15. So look, it's true. We all do long for a perfect place. We want to live in a perfect world. Maybe we want a perfect, a better home, a better family, better relationships. We want to live in a perfect place. 
And we also all do want protection and we want pardon. We want to be let off the hook and we want to be safe. But Genesis 3 shows us that ultimately what we really long for, whether we know it or not, is a person. It's a person. We long for this offspring of the woman. He's the offspring, in verse 15, the offspring of the woman who who God says he will make all things new, all things right. And Jesus Christ, the one who we celebrate come this time of year, and by God's grace we'll be celebrating every time we gather as a church, regardless of the calendar, he's the fulfillment of that promise. He's the one who was promised And he has come, the one who would eradicate sin and all the effects of sin. He meets our desire for the perfect place. Do you realize that? Through Jesus Christ's life and death, the way back to God has been opened. We can, Jesus in fact promises us that through him we can live in the house of the Lord forever. What does that mean? It's figurative language, but it speaks to the fact that we can live in close communion with this God that we were separated from because of the fall that we read about earlier. We can actually live and be part of his household, a place at his table, enjoying open and free fellowship with him. Jesus gets us a perfect place. Remember I said before, at the, at, after Adam and Eve sinned, uh, sent out of the garden, and, and, and they're these swords, these, these cherubs, these servants of God, these mysterious angelic beings are set up at the entrance to the garden, blocking the tree of life, and they're swinging these fiery swords so that no one could come in. In order to try to get in, you would die. And the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ was willing to die in order to give us access back to God to life. He was willing. When he went to the cross and he died in our place, it's as if he were willing to take those fiery swords and let them pierce him, let them cut down his body in order to give us access back to that perfect place, back to God. And he promises that for anyone who trusts in him and puts their faith in him, we are, in fact, already accepted by the Father. And not only that, but he tells us that he's going to return one day, and when he returns, he's going to make this place a perfect place. A new heavens and a new earth, the Bible tells us about. Restored creation, so that the the very place that was destroyed by sin is recreated, renewed, reinvigorated, and restored by God himself. He meets our desire for the perfect place, but he also meets our desire for pardon. I mean, that's what he offers us, is pardon, forgiveness. Jesus Christ was condemned, and he was executed so that we could be forgiven. For blame shifters like us, for for self-justifiers like us, excuse makers like you and like me, for critics who think of ourselves as somehow better than others. For cynics, who are unwilling to trust anyone else because no one else lives up to our standards. 
for people like that, he comes and he takes our place and he says, because I have died for you, you have pardon. Complete forgiveness. And he meets our desire for self-protection to our desire for protection. The Gospels tell us that Jesus Christ was stripped. He was totally exposed and shamed so that we could be covered and protected. The very baby who was wrapped in swaddling cloths, as Jenny read to us earlier, in that manger, would eventually have his tunic and his outer garments stripped away, along with his dignity, along with whatever honor could be taken away from him in order to be strung up and exposed, not only to the elements and not only to the anger of men and women, but exposed to the wrath of God. And he did this to buy for us complete and eternal protection. You know, in in Genesis 3, verse 20 and 21, it talks about the fact that God, he sees Adam and Eve in this... um, you know, covered with these little fig leaves, loincloths. And, and, um, and even in the midst of all that judgment, he's cursing them, he judges them. And in the midst of that, there's this amazing grace he shows and mercy he shows to them. It says, God took animals, took the skins of animals and made them into clothing to protect the bodies of Adam and Eve. You see, before he sends them out of the garden, he actually provides them with some protection. And for years, for years, scholars have said, this points ahead to something huge. It points ahead to the fact that Jesus Christ would have his skin, his flesh, broken in order to provide protection for us. So that we could be clothed, covered by his righteousness, so that we don't have to fear the wrath of God. And the fact is that if we don't have to fear the wrath of God, then we don't have to fear anything else. Jesus Christ, the offspring of the woman, the very Son of God, provides us with the the deepest longings of our heart. And one day he will come back and he's going to finally destroy our greatest threat, sin and death. And he will finally crush the head of the enemy. That's what we celebrate at Advent. That's what we celebrate. He has come and he's come again. Our deepest longings met and fulfilled by this one that's prophesied in Genesis 3, prophesied of again and again throughout the Old Testament until we see him born in the Gospels and live a perfect life and then die in order to secure for us those deepest longings, our deepest needs. And then he rises again from the dead. And he ascends to the side of the Father. But before doing so, he says, I will be back to finish what I've started. This is what we celebrate at Advent. And yet, and here's here's what I want us to think about. Although he is the very embodiment, Jesus Christ is, of the the fulfillment of all our longings. Don't we still live with longing? 
Don't we still live with a desire for things to be different? It's not just because we have trusted in Christ that now all of a sudden we sit in complete satisfaction, content and cold to the brokenness of the world around us, or cold and distant from the brokenness of the people in our lives, or unmoved by our own brokenness, our own suffering, our own sin. I believe that as Christians, we are meant to live with longing. We are meant to live with what Romans 8 calls an inward groaning, a desire for God's work, his full plan of redemption to be worked out and all things to be renewed, including us. Look at at what Romans 8 says. I love the way the Apostle Paul puts it here. In verse 22, he says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. He says the world itself is groaning. The world itself is discontent with its current state. The world itself, creation, looks forward to being renewed and restored. And then he says in verse 23, And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. You see, even though Christ has already died, our future is safe in him. We already have a place at the table with God. We have complete the promise of eternal pardon and protection, and yet there's this groaning inside that says, I want redemption to be completely consummated. I want to no longer have to struggle with sin. I don't want to look at a world around me and experience and see the suffering and the pain that's everywhere. There's a longing, a groaning. You see, we don't, as Christians, we don't need to to pretend like everything is okay. In fact, to, to pretend like the Christian life is all joy and all smiles is, um, It's not honest. It's not accurate. It's not the point of the Christian life, and it's not the point of Advent either. We live in the midst of this already and not yet. Christ has come once, and in one sense, he has finished the work. That is, no more payment needs to be offered for our forgiveness. No more payment has to be offered for our protection. Nothing else needs to be done in order to secure us a place with God. He has done all the work necessary to secure us that And yet, we live in the midst of this already not yet, where we have not yet seen the full consummation of all that. We look around the world and we still see sin. We look in our own hearts and we still see sin. Some of you this week, maybe, some of us, have found ourselves repenting of the same sins that we thought we'd be done with a long time ago. If that doesn't cause us to long for something better, I don't know what's wrong with us. The world is broken, and if that doesn't affect us, then then either we're oblivious to it or we're jaded towards it. Because we and our brothers and our sisters are still wrestling with sin. Some of us are battling cancer. Some of us are weighed down by loss and by loneliness. 
And the Bible doesn't tell us to fake like that's not the case. The Bible doesn't tell us to fake it till we make it. Or sing ourselves happy. Or act as if we should ignore the pain and the sickness and the brokenness. Because really, if we do that, really, if we do that as a congregation, what are we doing? We're, we're alienating believers who are beaten down and, and overwhelmed. We're, if we do that, we make ourselves and others feel like we're not Christian enough because we're not happy right now. And we end up alienating unbelievers, people who don't know Christ yet, because they see through the whole fakeness of all of that. They see it as bogus. I want to read you this quote because I really appreciate the way this guy says it. Russell Moore, he's a, an author and a leader that I really appreciate. He says, we all know that we live in a groaning universe. He's using that imagery from Romans 8, you know. We know that we live in a groaning universe, a world of divorce courts and cancer cells and concentration camps. Just as we sing with joy about the coming of the promised one, we ought to also sing with groaning that he has not come back yet. Sometimes with groanings too deep for lyrics, he says. Christian life is a life of joy, but it's also a life of lament. Lament over the state of some things or how they are now, but also it's joy over what Christ has already done, and it's joy about what he's going to do, what things will one day be. And likewise, I think Advent also is about looking back and rejoicing It's about looking ahead longingly, trusting, and saying, please come back. And when he does come back, and he will, listen to what he tells us it'll look like. In Isaiah 11, verse 9, he says, They shall not hurt or destroy in my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. All things will be right. And at the center of all that is made right is this, the Lord himself. The Lord himself. That's our hope this Advent season, New Hope. And and that's really our hope all of our lives if we're in Christ. And I believe that as we get to know Jesus more, we should expect the longing to grow. On the one hand, the full satisfaction with what he's done, that should be growing. The joy in what he's done for us is growing. And at the same time, as we mature spiritually, we should also expect the longing for what is to come to grow as well. Maybe maybe, um, some of what I said today, maybe it sounds to you like um, nice, but perhaps naive to expect that all things will one day be right, to expect that Jesus really means it when he says that one day he will wipe away every tear and there will no longer be pain or sadness. Or maybe it sounds to you almost like irrelevant, like it doesn't matter. Like you look around at the world around you and you say, yeah, I realize that things are messed up here, but this is what we've got. And frankly, we have to make do with it. And to expect that somehow it's going to be miraculously renewed in the future and made right is foolish. After all, things are what they are, and I'm doing pretty fine the way it is. Maybe there is no sense of longing in your heart, but I would say to you that the absence of that longing, maybe you should question it. Maybe you should wonder why it's there. 
You know, the same guy that I quoted earlier, Russell Moore, he um, tells a story about how he adopted one of his children. He's, um, he adopted a, a, a child from Russia, and he tells a story about how he and his wife, before they had met the child that they were going to adopt, they made a trip to Russia and they visited, um, and back then, I guess it was in the Soviet Union, they visited a Soviet um, orphanage. And he tells this story about when he walked in with his wife Maria into that orphanage filled with infants. He says, I stopped and pulled on Maria's elbow. And I said, why is it so quiet? This place is filled with babies. And both of us compared the stillness of that orphanage with the buzz and the squeals and the noise that came from our church nursery back home. Something some of you maybe are very familiar with. He says here, if we listened carefully enough, we could hear babies rocking themselves back and forth. The crib slats gently bumping against the walls. These children did not cry, though. He says, because infants eventually learn to stop crying if no one ever responds to their calls for food, for comfort, for love. No one ever responded to these children, so they stopped, he said. You see, the longing in their hearts had dissipated because the prospect of someone coming and actually rescuing them had dissipated. It was no longer realistic. They didn't expect a savior. They didn't expect anything to change. And so the longing and the yelling and the crying out disappeared. These infants, if you could say, in some way had become jaded, if that's even possible. He goes on to tell the story about how once they, um, they actually did begin the adoption process, they went to that same orphanage to meet with and spend some family face-to-face time with their infant boy before they brought him back home to the U.S., And so they went there and they spent some days with this boy and the plan was to spend some days with him, leave him there, come back home, and then make perhaps more of those trips before finally bringing him home, finally. Some of you much more familiar with that process than I am. But they said that after that first trip, he and his wife spent some time with their baby, one of the babies that just didn't cry anymore. He said that after spending some time with this baby, playing and laughing and feeding, Eventually, it was time to go, and they put down this child, and they got up to go. And the child shrieked, and the child cried out, and the child wanted its mom desperately. And he said what had been rekindled in the heart of this child was a sense that, yes, there is something to long for. There is the prospect of being loved and comforted and pardoned and protected, a place in a family, And once that was reawakened in this child, he wouldn't stop crying until he got what he longed for. And so it is, I think, for us. If you're in a place where longing seems to be far forgotten, you've outgrown it. You've become so mature. You've accepted that this is our lot and things aren't going to get any better. I would say to you that if you experience firsthand the love of God in Jesus Christ, experience what pardon and protection and a place with him looks like, it will have the effect of rekindling in your desire, in your heart, the desire for more and more 
and more. I'll leave you with these words from Isaiah 30. Here is what Jesus says to anyone who would believe in him, the long-awaited Savior. He says, therefore the Lord longs to be gracious to you. And therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. And how blessed are those who long for him. I invite you to pray with me. Our God and our Father, we worship you and we look to you as the one who satisfies our needs and the only one who can fill the deepest desires in our heart. Those desires that you have planted in us. Those desires that, that, that sometimes they wax and they wane. They go up and they go down. And sometimes they're so ardent and so felt. And other times they're not. But in the midst of all that, Lord, you remain the same and your promises remain the same. Jesus, we thank you for humbling yourself and taking the form of a man and dying for us in order to secure us what we need. And we thank you that you will return and that you are even now eager, longing to continue to show mercy to us. It's in your name we pray, and it's your name that we celebrate in this season and in every season. Amen.